So when I was in grade school at Concordia Lutheran Grade School, we had a custom at lunchtime. We would pray, give thanks before every time we would eat together, and then we would return thanks at the end. So before every single lunch, before the chili and the cornbread and the cinnamon roll, which was the best lunch, and it was on Wednesdays, that is burnt into my psyche, uh, we would say, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, let these gifts to us be blessed. Then at the end of the meal, we would all, at the tables, after the teachers got our attention, we would say, oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. And then we would go to recess. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. But that's where the bullies would be. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. But there's a spelling test in 30 minutes that I am not ready for. Let's, let's bring it forward a little bit. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And Dallas, Texas is having weeks of 100-degree temperatures. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. But the fires in Maui have taken upwards of 30 to 45 lives. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. But there are friends and families who are facing diseases and hard times that I just can't wrap my head around. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. You know, our broken reality can blind us to the need and the right place for gratefulness and thanksgiving in our lives. I love Psalm 116, what Jonathan just read for us. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. You hear hear the absolute statement? He has heard my voice. He has heard my pleas for mercy. And it's not the kind of hearing of, yeah, 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 I hear you. No, he he hears it. The next line, because he inclined his ear to me. There's, There's a picture here. He inclined his ear. It's it's like a grandparent having their grandchild coming up to them and getting down on one knee and inclining their ear to hear. This is our God. He hears us. He hears our pleas. Therefore, the psalmist says, I will call on him for as long as I live. God is faithful even when it seems like he's not. And his faithfulness to us, it it demands a response from us. So this morning, the the challenge that we're facing in light of this broken reality that can blind us to the need to be grateful, how do we learn to respond with thanksgiving, even when we're in the midst of distress or we're wrestling with very real doubts? And Psalm 116 does a great job of giving us a picture of this. In fact, I would say Psalm 116 gives us a model for how we respond to the very real distresses of life. It's an emotional piece of poetry, and that's what it is. We know this. That's what the Psalms are. They're poetry, and this is an emotional piece of poetry with themes that are woven in and out the fabric of praise. This Psalm is about praise. It's like the Lord's Prayer. It teaches us how to pray. And specifically, it teaches us how to pray in times of distress. And let's be honest with one another. Distress is coming. Let's look at the context of Psalm 116. 
It falls into two categories, and I'm going to use some nerdy words because I am, let's face it, a nerd, okay? It is a toda psalm, and toda is it's a psalm of thanksgiving. And the reason I want to bring that up is it is a psalm of thanksgiving, but as I start reading it, as we start digging into it, it's a confusing psalm of thanksgiving because it's also a psalm of lament. Usually those two don't go hand in hand in the way that they do. But there's another so cool thing about this psalm. It's also what's called a Paschal Halal. And if you have ever participated in a Passover Seder, these are the psalms, the the teens, the one teens, these are the psalms that would be read during the Passover Seder. So they would be read or they would be sung. And this particular psalm is one that would be sung at the end of the Passover Seder. Now, why is this so cool? Well, we can think of one very particular Passover Seder, one very particular Passover meal, where someone significant then who was leading that meal would have read or sung this song. Jesus, at the Last Supper, would have sang Psalm 116 when he was there with his disciples. And that's going to become... Important, excuse me, important as we're looking at this psalm and considering our, our Savior said these very words on, on the night before he was betrayed. He was singing these words, this song, with his disciples. So, as I said, distress is coming. Let's look at what the psalmist has to say about this distress. Listen to verse 3. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Sheol is, is the grave or a, or a terrifying death. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. So death, death in the Psalms is not always just bodily death. Uh, The psalmists, when they are talking about the concept of death and facing death, they are speaking about anything that violates the perfect, beautiful shalom of God. So this guy, he's saying, the snares of death encompassed me, the the, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I'm suffering distress and anguish. Guess what? That's a description of peace not being present. This is a type of death and a very unpleasant one. And then in that very moment, in that very moment, he cries out for help. And these verses remind us that as a result of the fall, we can expect suffering from within and from without. We can expect suffering from the circumstances of life that are pressing in on us, but we can also expect suffering from the angst and the twisting of the heart and the soul that occurs within us. This distress is certain. Isn't this a cheerful start to a sermon? But this is the human experience. On this side of the fall, we live in a world that's marked by this. But then, in the midst of it, he cries out in prayer. And something I've seen in my life, and I don't know if you've seen it in yours, real trouble produces real prayer. There's something about that wake-up call, that, that gut punch that reminds us of who we are and who God is, and where our help comes from. So in the midst of that struggle, then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, deliver my soul. But sometimes, in the midst of our crying out, 
In the midst of us crying out that real prayer for God to deliver us, in the midst of it, we experience very real doubt. So yes, distress is certain, but doubt is common. Often when I'm sitting down with someone who is going through a very difficult situation, uh, the, the question comes up, and you know the question. How could a loving God allow this type of thing to happen? But that's, that's not really the question, is it? It's how can a loving God allow this thing to happen to me? Is he really loving if this is what I'm experiencing? Doubt is common. Doubt comes in. And let's look at this. Psalm 116. I'm going to be jumping around in the psalm a little bit, but we're going to cover the whole thing. Verses 10 and 11. In response to this idea of doubt, the psalmist says, I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. So what is the psalmist saying here? He's he's wrestling with doubt. He's in the midst of it, and he goes, "I'm, I'm I'm afflicted. Everybody around me is a liar. But how did it start? I believed. I believed even when I was expressing my doubt. I believed even when I was in the midst of that persecution and didn't trust anything around me. Maybe I was asking that question, how can a good God allow this to happen to me? All around me are liars. But I believed. About four years ago this month, I had the sobering blessing opportunity to walk with a young family who were about to lose their son. Uh, he was a newborn, and there were, everything was healthy. Everything was fine all the way up, and, and the delivery was occurring on schedule, but then during the delivery, there were complications. And the boy was born, and they weren't sure if he was going to make it for more than a couple of weeks. And sure enough, he didn't. It was heartbreaking. I was in the hospital that night as, as she was in labor, waiting to see what would happen, because he called. He sent out the SOS going, things are not going as they should be. Please be praying. I got to the hospital, and I'm waiting. And he comes down, and he shares with me, here's what's going on. Here's what happened during the delivery. We don't think our son is going to live to see next week. But I know God has something for us in this. I don't know what it is. But God's goodness does not depend upon my impression of it. And I was, I was stunned. This, this authentic faith being expressed by this young husband in the midst of very authentic confusion. So he believed, even when he spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Doubt is common. And I want to say that as an encouraging, reassuring statement to you. That when you are facing something and you start asking the big questions and you think, oh man, am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to think that about God? Is that blasphemy? Friend, read the Psalms. We have been given permission to ask God hard questions. And let me tell you something, God is big enough to handle our hard questions. We don't need to protect God from our questions. In fact, he wants us to do what's modeled for us in the book of Psalms and to bring our doubts to him. So that through his people, by his spirit, he might minister to us in the midst of those doubts. I I was amazed that in the midst of this distress and this doubt, my friend 
had confidence. And I can honestly say, as a father to five daughters, I don't know if I would have been able to model such confidence if I had been facing the same situation. I pray so, but I don't know. But I was so encouraged by this. And I believe the reason that he was able to have that confidence, even though he was in this distress, even though he was experiencing this doubt, is because he knows what this Bible tells us is true. That deliverance is certain. Even in the midst of the darkest times, deliverance is certain. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Notice the structure here. God is gracious, yes, but he's also righteous. And because he's righteous, he can have nothing to do with sin. Because he's righteous, he is a God of perfect justice. His grace, which is abundant, never compromises his justice. He is perfect justice. He is righteousness, but he's also merciful. I love how this verse spells out the character of God for us in just a few short words. And then verse 6, the translation I'm using this morning says, The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. So the word simple there, the connotation of simple is the idea of young or naive. Someone who doesn't have all the answers. Somebody who isn't walking around with a PhD in God. That's the simple. The young, the naive. And then when it says, when I was brought low, he saved me. Uh, The Hebrew literally there is, when I was made little, he saved me. When I was made small, when I was made insignificant, he saved me. So he's describing here, the psalmist is describing us to us the type of person God is predisposed to protect. The simple, childlike, naive faith who does not think more of themselves than they ought. When I was brought low, he saved me. Now we don't know for sure who the psalmist is who's writing Psalm 116. Another interesting thing about this psalm, uh, it's the only one in this category that is personal, that's individual. The rest are corporate. They're corporate psalms of thanksgiving. They're corporate psalms of worship. This is a person who's wrestling, and they describe that they needed to be brought low. Suffering, I don't know what the answer is to the question of why is there suffering in the world. And if you ever have a preacher or anyone tell you, Here's why they're suffering. Run. Leave. Nothing healthy is going to be coming out of that mouth. We don't know the answer to that question. But we can see some pictures of why there might be suffering in certain circumstances. And as I read this, when God preserves the simple and when I was brought low, he saved me, suffering can be used by God to make us into the kind of people that he's predisposed to protect. So Jonathan mentioned that I was going to be sharing my story this morning, my testimony, and that's not intimidating at all, but here we are. And this verse, uh, I needed to be brought low. 
Uh, I was, for 26 years, uh, an enemy of God. Uh, For 26 years, I lived as a liar and as a thief and as a con artist. I didn't care who I hurt. I didn't care what I did. I just cared about what I would get out of it. I was a man without a conscience. And I am going to be reading this, otherwise we will be here for 50 minutes of my story. And what I want to do is attempt to capture a lifetime in about 10 minutes. And that's not possible to do. It means I won't be able to go into as much detail as maybe I'd like to. But as Jonathan said, uh, Lisa and I would love to sit down with you for coffee or lunch to answer your questions, to talk more. I'm presenting this at a certain level so we can get through the Sunday and not be here until Monday afternoon. Uh, But if you have any unanswered questions as a result of me sharing my story, please, I would welcome the chance to sit down with you. So it all started with me, as it starts for many of us, when I was very young. I am a first-generation Norwegian-American and grew up in a very Norwegian household. And as Norwegians, we have a state church. Uh, Lutheranism is the state church of Norway. So I was baptized into the Norwegian church, and I was sent to Lutheran schools. My father told me, when I was going to Concordia Lutheran School that I referenced earlier, uh, at a very early age, he said, don't turn off your brain. Learn the morality from these people, but not their mythology. Their God is no different than the gods of Greek and Norse mythology. Don't turn off your brain. So this was my mindset, going through Lutheran grade school, Lutheran high school, Lutheran university. Okay, learn the morality, but not the mythology. Well, I succeeded at one of those. I I learned the mythology. I didn't learn the mythology. I rejected the mythology. But I also rejected their morality because I developed this idea that Christians, because they believe this this myth, they're intellectually weak. Christians are unable to stand on their own, and therefore they make easy targets. So I made those ways through my early years, lying and stealing and manipulating. And Christians, people of faith, were often the easy targets. And as a result, I left a wake of hurt and confused people behind me. I got married to my first wife. I got divorced. I got remarried to Lisa. All of this um, before I became a believer. And all along, both of these women had no idea who I truly was because I had a narrative about my life, and that was the narrative that I let people know. And it would be helpful, although this isn't in what I wrote down, that the Lutheran, great, uh, Lutheran high school I was sent to uh, was a Lutheran boarding school. I went to a public high school for the first two years. And due to my behavior and choices that I don't want to glorify here, but we can talk about later if you'd like, uh, the high school um, firmly requested that I never darken their doors again. So boarding school... I was sent off to Missouri, away from home, and this created something for me. I could start over. Nobody knew who I was. I had no family there to counteract what I would say, so I created a legend around who I was and my story and my background. And that created this mythology of Steneric that these two women my first wife and Lisa were brought into ignorantly thinking it was truth. After my first wife left, um, the heat was starting to turn up at the company where I was working. I had been 
uh, embezzling from them for some time, and one of the district managers was starting to become aware that I was not behaving in the way that I should be, so I left before the temperature got too hot. And here's where the story gets um, even more shameful and difficult for me to share. So I left that job. I no longer have my, my wife or my firstborn daughter. They're gone. I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? What do I know? And what I knew was Lutheranism. I grew up in this system. I was confirmed as a Lutheran. I went to a Lutheran university to, to learn how to teach in Lutheran schools. I knew Lutheranism. So, after all those years in the system, I lied about my credentials and got accepted into a program that worked with uh, Lutheran pastors to equip and train them to become youth pastors. This was pre-internet, so it was very easy to lie about your credentials in those days. So I was in that program and ended up being placed at a Lutheran church up north. And this is the point where God really started to work on me from the outside. If you can picture this, uh, I'm serving as a youth pastor up north and I'm teaching confirmation classes. I'm, I'm, I'm leading Bible studies. I'm facilitating and hosting lock-ins with high schoolers and junior high kids, which, you know, if that doesn't earn you a place, yeah, never mind. Uh, <laughs> I'm, sur- I'm being surrounded by the Word of God, believing none of it, but I am surrounded by it. I am teaching it, and I am becoming increasingly uncomfortable. I remember a Sunday, at, or it was a Saturday night actually, after a lock-in, where I went into the sanctuary, and I stood in the aisle, and I pointed at the cross, and I was yelling at God, uh, which for me was a huge step forward in faith because I was acknowledging there was an object to yell at. But I was being pressed on by all of this. So I did not start out at this church with the intention of taking advantage of these people, but I was who I was. And I was visiting Lisa. We were engaged at this point down in Minnesota, and a blizzard came through, as it often does in the north. And it was, un- it was impossible for me to make it up north from Minneapolis-St. Paul to North Dakota, where I was serving. The roads were closed, but I had a car payment due. And I had a paycheck that I needed to pick up in order to make that car payment. EFT was not yet a thing, or if it was, it's not a thing that I knew about. So I called up to the church and said, hey, would it be okay if I cut myself my paycheck out of the youth account so I can make my car payment while I'm down here because I'm not going to make it back in time, and then I'll just pay it back when I get my paycheck? And they said, what did they say? They said, of course. Of course you can do that. So I did that. And that created this, this tone and this atmosphere of permissibility, and I started a process that uh, uh, I, I would call it reverse tithing. I would take 500 bucks and I'd repay 50. I'd take 250 bucks, I'd repay 25, and I was doing this for an extended period of time, justifying it in my mind. Well, they're not paying me very well, and I am paying it back. Uh, Not in a way that will ever satisfy the debt, but I am paying it back. Then I left the church, and I I still get a kick out of this. I I don't know what the Holy Spirit was doing. Um, I was still not a believer. I knew I was not a believer. I left the church for theological reasons. There was a doctrinal inconsistency that I could not make peace with uh, just on an intellectual basis. And so I left the church for doctrinal reasons. And when I left, 
And this is, for me, one of the greatest evidences the Holy Spirit was doing something in spite of me at that moment. I gave them a spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet listed everything that I had taken from the youth account and everything that I had paid back. And I stated my intention, once I get back down to Minnesota and I find a job, I will pay back the balance. I'll pay back what's due. Well, the church uh, rightfully uh, called their insurance company and said, well, we want this money back now. And the insurance company said, no problem. You just need to press charges. And and so, so that's what they did. The first indication that Lisa had that anything was wrong with this man that she had married, at this point we had gotten married, was when she witnessed a felony takedown uh, in Minnesota and saw me being taken away in the back of a squad car. To make a very long story incredibly short, I was eventually convicted of a felony and sentenced to four years in prison. Let's go back to the text for a second, because I need a break. (laughs) God delivers. God delivers in the midst of these doubts, in the midst of this distress. He is a God who delivers. And in verse 8 and 9, we get a picture of that deliverance. The psalmist says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Does that sound familiar at all? Can you think of any other place in Scripture where you have a description like this? You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist here is giving us a picture of entire redemption. Not just a redemption that alleviates our doubt and distress right now. It is that. But it's also a redemption that one day we will see in fullness. This is foreshadowing the book of Revelation. The day when death is no more and there will no longer be any tears and we will walk in the presence of God forever. The psalmist is giving us a picture of this whole redemption. So while I was in jail, the church that Lisa was a part of, they had a missionary who worked with inmates and he lived three hours away from the place where I was being held. He drove three hours each way, six hours round trip for those of you who are not too tight on math, to spend 15 minutes with me. And he did this a couple of times a month. Just just phenomenal sacrifice. I didn't appreciate it at the time, and now I, I've, I've come to really appreciate what Denny did. And what he did is he didn't tell me anything I hadn't already heard before. I taught catechism. I went through this whole Lutheran system. I had all this head knowledge. I just completely rejected it. But the Holy Spirit, through Denny, worked in his life and his words to take that and change who I was. And it was around day 48. I had a journal that Lisa gave me that I kept while I was there. And if you read that journal, that first month, month and a half, I was so angry. I was angry at the church. I was angry at the judge. I was angry for my good-for-nothing public defender. I was angry at God. It was just anger in that journal. But right around day 48, the journal tone changed. And it started turning into prayers. And it started turning into requests that God would use me in this place to show others who he is. So I don't have a moment where I remember being struck with the lightning of the Holy Spirit and my life was forever changed, but I can look at that piece of paper and I can see 
the moment that the Spirit regenerated my heart and changed my affections and set my heart on the sun. And it was no longer an intellectual idea that I rejected, but it was something that was true and real and vibrant in my life. I am so thankful for the ministry of this guy who drove all of this way to spend time with an arrogant con artist. God brought me low. I was not simple. I was better than everybody else. I was smarter than everybody else. That's why I could manipulate and con the way that I did. And God brought me low through this incident with the church, brought me into prison, convicted me of a felony, and I'm sitting there with nothing to do but to read the Bible, to write and wrestle with these questions. He brought me low. He made me simple. And I am so thankful for this. By the grace of God, I only served six months of that four-year sentence, and I got home just under a month before Christina, my daughter with Lisa, was born. So I was able to be there for, for that birth. I drove a truck. I didn't think I'd ever be able to get another job as a convicted felon. Uh, there's nothing wrong with driving a truck, but you know what? There was something wrong with the way that I drove a truck. Uh, Minnesota still contains the scars of vehicles and buildings that I hit with that truck over that period of time. There's a story there for another time. Uh, but I worked driving this truck, and then I worked in commission sales, and then my mother took very ill, and so we wanted her, we wanted her to get to know her grandchildren. So we moved down temporarily from Minnesota to Illinois to spend time there so she could get to know the grandkids. And then my mother, this stubborn Norwegian, who was supposed to have weeks to live, lived for four and a half more years. So that move to Illinois became a permanent move. And due to a human resources mistake, I was hired into a call center not as a person on the phones, but as a manager. I checked yes on the box. They didn't notice it until they already offered me the position, at which point they couldn't rescind the offer. So I was hired in as a manager. And then from that job, I was headhunted by another company for an operations management position. God was just paving this way. They knew who I was. They knew where I had been, but he was giving me a new opportunity. He blessed my career to the point where uh, my final job before coming to seminary, I was the vice president of human resources and legal compliance for a finance firm. <laughs> when the owner of the company offered me this position, I said, Kevin, I can't, I can't take this job. I'm I'm a convicted felon for financial crimes. I cannot take this job. And Kevin was a believer, and he said, Stenaric, I don't care who you were. I care about who God is making you to be. Now go and do your job. And that was the moment where I shifted from being so ashamed of my past that I kept it a secret from everyone, and I was angry when anyone would find out who I once was, to I am robbing God of glory by not sharing what he has done and what he's doing in my life. I still don't relish telling my story because my fear is always that what's going to be glorified is my sin and my past and not the God who has saved me from my sin and my past. Regarding the church, after moving to Illinois, we got involved with a local church and the pastor, as a good pastor would do, had a young family coming in and he thinks, excellent, volunteers. Uh, so he takes me out to lunch to get me involved in service in the church and I let him know 
I'm, I'm sorry, dude, I cannot serve the church. I cannot work in the church. I have lost the privilege to serve the church in any way because of my past, and I shared my past with him. And this man had a pretty good understanding of God's grace, and he rejected my rejection. And after a period of time, I started singing on the platform with the worship team, and then I ended up being the worship leader until they actually hired somebody qualified. I had no intention or no desire of this happening, but God kept opening these doors. Now, where am I? I'm a tenure-track professor at Dallas Theological Seminary in the Pastoral Theology Department teaching pastoral ethics. <laughs> I've been pastoring in the DFW area for over a decade. I do not understand God's grace. I do not understand what he has done and what he has allowed in my life. But I am so thankful that he made me simple and he brought me low and one of my regular prayers is that no amount of education, no title, no matter how many books I read, that I never want to cease being the naive, simple man who desires to know the God who delivers me from distress and doubt. So let's get back to Psalm 116. God brought me low, saved me, redeemed me. I've learned over these years that forgiveness from sin does not mean forgiveness from consequences. Consequences are still a very real thing in my life, and I've learned to accept them and sometimes even appreciate them because they remind me of where God has taken me from. It does not mean freedom from consequences, but it does mean that we are redeemed. The whole redemption, as I just said a moment ago, is not just of what is to come, but what can be right now. So, deliverance. Deliverance is certain even when we're in the midst of distress, even when we are experiencing that common doubt. So what do we do about that? As Mike read for us this morning from Colossians 3, we're to be thankful. In the midst of that distress, in the midst of that doubt, be thankful. Let's keep looking at this psalmist who is being tortured within and without and see what he says in verse 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully for you, with you. Notice the tensing there. This is in the midst of being distressed and anguished and having the pangs of Sheol set upon him and the snares of death encompassing him. He's saying, rest, rest, even there, even then. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? So he's still in the midst of trial, and he's proactively thinking, how can I be thankful? Because God will deliver me. So even now, in the midst of this distress, how can I be thankful? This is reflexive, that the transition is not automatic. We must actively identify the lessons that God may be teaching us. Do so with humility. Recognize that we may not always be able to come up with the answer, but if we reflect and consider what God has done and what he's doing, we might be able to have an idea of a facet of why God is doing this to shape our characters into men and women who look more like Jesus. Verses 14 and 16, so we see it's not only proactive, it's persistent. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. 
Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I just want to take a commercial break and look at verse 15 for one second. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I have heard this said at so many funerals and memorial services. Precious. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Don't mourn, for this death is precious to God. That is not what this verse is saying. Death is the enemy. God hates death more than we do. If death were not the enemy, he wouldn't have sent his son, Jesus Christ, to defeat it for us. God hates death. So what do we get from this then? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Well, let's consider the word precious. The word precious in the Hebrew, we might be able to render it better by saying valuable or costly. Costly in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This is something that is not the way it should be. Genesis 3 is not God's desire. Costly. Every life is precious. Every death is costly. But notice how persistent. I will pay my vows in the presence of the people. I'm your servant. This is what I'm going to do. Our payment, the answer to verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Well, what's the, what's the theologically correct answer to that? What are you going to do? What are you going to pay God back with because of everything he's done for you? What do you got? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. This is a rhetorical question from the psalmist. What, what can I render to God for all his benefits to me? <laughs> nothing. But let me tell you what I can do. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So I am going to be proactively thinking about how I'm going to express my gratitude to God. I am going to be persistent in doing this in the presence of God's people. So what does that mean? Publicly. Publicly, we give thanks to God for his abundance to us, even in the midst of these difficult times. We see this in verse 13 and 17 and 19. He describes... I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Where? In the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So publicly. Publicly we're to give thanks to God. So where? How do we do this? Well, I would make the suggestion, here, now, might be an answer. This is the house of God. These are his people. And you remember, I mentioned at the beginning, that this psalm is a paschal halal. It is a psalm that Jesus would have sung towards the end of the supper. And when you look at the Passover meal, it is rife with symbolism. There are multiple foods symbolizing different things about their time in Egypt. There's multiple cups of wine, and each of these cups of wine have different purposes throughout the meal. And then there is one cup. Sometimes it's called the cup of Elijah. And wine is poured into this cup, and that cup is set there, and no one touches it. No one drinks from it. They have a moment of silence as a family to give Elijah the opportunity to come. Because what does Elijah herald? The coming of the Messiah. 
That's what they believe. And so there's the cup of Elijah. You know what another name is for the cup of Elijah? The cup of salvation. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, I'm stealing Traban's thunder here, he takes up the cup when? After they had supped. When do you take up the cup of Elijah? After they have eaten. He takes it and he says, take, drink of this, all of you, for this is the cup of the new covenant. This meal that we will be observing in just a moment, Jesus is the one who introduced the meal the way that we observe it. And I believe, as I look at this text, that this cup of salvation that's being lifted up as we declare what God has done for us is the cup of Elijah. It is the cup that will never be raised until we know the Messiah has come. And the Messiah has come. And He has taken up the cup of salvation. And He has invited us to this table so that we might be able to stand in the presence of the people and be faithful to our vows to God in the presence of the people. So as we participate in this meal... I want us to be remembering what God has done. This is an opportunity not for us just to participate together in something, but to give thanks for what God has done. For if we approach this table, then he has saved us from our sin. Would you pray with me? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Heavenly Father, as your church, we call upon you, you who are strength and surety in distress, you who are our answer and foundation in doubt, you who are the one who has provided for our deliverance, We wish to make known our vows to you, knowing that we could never repay you for what you have done for us. We make known that you have saved us, that you have given us new life, that there is nothing that we can do that outsins the extent of your grace. May we as a community of faith be a community who lives in gratitude in every season, in every trial, because you alone are worthy of our worship and your faithfulness to us, even when it seems as though you are silent, still demands a response. For you are God and you are good. Amen. Let us stand together.